This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanen, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 94, and I am interviewing Kelly Deals, a feminist marketing consultant about the way female empowerment is being misused and appropriated in the online world, how this upholds patriarchal systems, why self-care is a collective issue, and what you can watch out for as a consumer to advocate for yourself and demand better. You can find all of the links and resources mentioned in this show at summerinanen.com forward slash 94. That's nine four. I want to remind you that if you haven't already done so, please leave a review for this show on iTunes. It helps others to find the information that you're learning here. I recently saw this awesome review from Puberitis Donnie. Again, amazing handle, Puberitis. <laughs> I love how true and real this podcast is. Nothing less than honest truth. The delivery is informative and engaging. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You can leave a review by going to iTunes, searching for Fearless Rebel Radio, then click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating. Second, if you haven't already done so, go and grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Today's guest is Kelly Deals. Kelly is a writer and marketing consultant, and her approach is based upon the marketing strategies of movements and revolutionaries. Her chief inspirations for how to get visible and get shit done are the Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the man was a master strategist, and the black lesbian feminist poet Audre Lorde. She is a published writer and social critic. She has a BA with honors in political science. She has five children. Every Sunday, she writes blazing epistles of righteousness, and she is a rampant feminist. Her feminism and her work are about justice. Kelly is awesome, and you're going to learn a lot from this episode. I know as a coach, I've learned so much about how I can do better, and I'm committed to doing better. So I hope if you're a coach listening that you learn and take stuff away from this, and that if you are not a coach and you're just a consumer and a listener, I hope that this teaches you how to be more critical of what is being sold to you and the deceptive ways that we have been marketed to. All right, enjoy. Let's get started with the show. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Summer. Hello to you. I am eager to interview you because we speak a lot about media literacy on this show as it relates to body image and female ideals. And I want to expand that discussion with you to unpack what you call the female lifestyle empowerment brand. In order to help listeners become aware and conscious of this, and I know there's other coaches that listen to this podcast as well who are striving to do better with the way that they are marketing, and that includes myself. So I am really honored that you took the time to be here today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. These are some of my favorite topics. So thank you for having me. Good. Excellent. Well, I'd love you to start out by talking about how, how you got into this work. Like, how did you go from, because I think you were a mar- like you were a marketing consultant before, and I won't tell your story for you, but <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. And now you've kind of gone to really discover the way that it's become quite deceptive, the model that's being pushed out there. 
So how did you get into this work? Right. So I was a marketing consultant before and I'm a marketing consultant now. But what I say now is now I'm a feminist marketing consultant. And I was always a feminist and a marketing consultant, but the two things didn't meet. Mm -hmm. And that was the problem. So what I realized was I trained in my online marketing studies sort of at the feet of people who wanted to teach us about using social triggers. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out why, even though I understood the method, I understood the model, I knew what I was supposed to do. I just couldn't consistently make myself do it. And so what I real thought at the time was that, you know, basically that I was uniquely defective and like not set up for success and like that it was all me that I somehow just couldn't do it. And I, I just got to a place where I was starting to sabotage myself and like undermine myself. And I just couldn't do it anymore, could not market like that anymore, could not teach people to market like that anymore, and honestly thought it was me, thought I had a problem. And so I opted out. I just basically closed up shop. I had been teaching people how to write online. I had been copywriting for people who had online businesses. I had been supporting and teaching like digital marketing strategy. And I literally just closed up shop and walked away. And I was gone for almost two years. And I went off privately and got a job business to business marketing communications, wherein I just had to teach people, you know, what the benefits of the product were and educate people about how the systems work and then just let them decide to buy it. There was no convincing. There was no leveraging of social triggers. There was no manipulation. It was just like, here is this $250,000 system. Here's what it will do. Do you want some training on it? Okay, let's buy it. Like it was literally like that simple and it was such a palate cleanser. And in that time, I guess I detoxed from a lot of the online messages that had become the air that I breathed. I literally went offline. Like I, I wasn't on Facebook for 18 months. I just completely went away from the world and just did my marketing communications work in a, in a very big business. And then I got pregnant and this was the fourth child for me. And I also have a, a bonus child, an older stepchild. So it was a total of five children in the house. And I reached a tipping point where like with this many children and my husband working out of town most of the time, the corporate schedule was not going to work for me. It just was not going to be something that I could manage any longer, which meant I needed to rejig my world, which meant I probably need to go back to freelancing. So I when the baby was a baby, started figuring out how to get back in the online world. And when I came back, it just honestly, Summer, it like smacked me in the face. I kept noticing that things were even more polished and beautiful than before, that people were saying the same messages over and over again, that people had moved on from like six figure lifestyles to like seven figure lifestyles and mm -hmm. ten, eight figure lifestyles. And like the bar had moved and people were so polished and contrived. And so I was noticing it and I was noticing a pattern of all the famous online leaders being white, thin, pretty, having long hair, being heterosexual and like, you know, sort of delightful and likable. And I just kept thinking like, why is this? What is going on here? What's the pattern here? And I was noticing it. And at the same time as I was, I was noticing it, I was also like becoming acutely aware of all the <laughs> black people being murdered at the hands of police and vigilantes mm -hmm. and all of these coaches who looked like this one particular thing who called themselves world changers weren't saying anything about it. So they had positioned themselves as 
activists and world changers and philanthropists and, you know, game changers and they were not, and leaders and they were not saying anything about actual challenges and problems in our world. And I was like, what is this? There's this, on one hand, there's this like archetype of femininity that's calling itself a leader and then not actually leading what is going on here. And so it just all coalesced. I'm like, oh, this is a pattern. This is like training for us in how to be an ideal woman. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then it, then it just all came together. I'm like, oh, this is the female lifestyle empowerment brand. And what we're actually trying to do is not lead and not change. What we're actually trying to do is build personal empires. We're leveraging the existing social conditions and the desire that women have to have more time, to have more freedom, to have more money, all of which is like systematically, you know, withheld from women in our culture. They're leveraging those desires and telling us they're changing things and calling that empowerment. And it's not. And so I was just I was just so fundamentally, honestly, somewhere I was disappointed. And in some cases, it really broke my heart mm-hmm. because some. Some of the people I'd been following and really looking to for leadership were so incredibly disappointing in that moment. And it it really was, it was such a letdown. And then I was like, okay, we need to do something about it. That's great. And I would love you to elaborate more on what the female lifestyle empowerment brand is and some of the problems that you see with it. Sure. So I say the female lifestyle empowerment brand is an archetype of ideal womanhood. Mm -hmm. It is a model for us of what a woman should be. And if we become that woman, we will be rewarded with rights and resources. And when I'm talking about that, I'm saying like female as in there's a conventional kind of femininity that we've got to conform to. And it's white femininity. And if you are not that thing, if you're not white and straight and, and cisgender, it is not a success model for you. You must be that thing in order to rise. That's not on the female lifestyle empowerment brands themselves. They're just leveraging the existing condition. That's like, that's our culture. Then lifestyle is a form of marketing that we use to be likable. And what I think it is, is we're leveraging white privilege and wealth and demonstrating this beautiful picture, perfect life in order to build authority over other women. They're looking to us, those of us who are doing that as models of how to be successful, what life should look like. And it builds authority and obedience. So it's really a way of constructing authority over other women. That's not empowerment, right? Like that's just our culture, again, using wealth and white supremacy to make other people obey us. And then empowerment, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about the way that these leaders use political language and feminist language while not actually doing any political or feminist work, Okay. So they're co-opting activist language and getting all the glamour and prestige that comes from being a rebel without actually doing anything rebellious. Okay. And then brand is the process by which women are trained to sell themselves and become products. And every woman in our culture has to do that, whether or not they have a business or a public persona. We are trained to be consumable objects. And that all those four patterns intersecting is what I call the female lifestyle empowerment brand. I feel that it's both an archetype that tells women how we're supposed to be. And it tells all women that, and it's a marketing narrative that some really savvy women use to construct authority over other women. Do you feel like they know that? Um, yes and no. 
I think they, some of them are really forensic and savvy and they absolutely know what they're doing. And I would point to Ivanka, Ivanka Trump as an example of like, she absolutely knows what she's doing Yeah, and it's deliberate and conscious. And I would say that some people are really sincerely trying to do good work and trying to execute certain marketing formulas and not connecting the dots Mm -hmm. between our cultural conditions and what they're promoting. Like they're just not connecting the dots. They, they don't yet have that kind of political or collective consciousness. And I, I really sincerely believe that no one is very few people are trying to do harm. It's just that the voice of culture is working through them without their consent. Yeah. Cause I know, I know in my circumstance, like I, you know, reading through your work and really becoming a lot more attuned to it, it's, you know, obviously have, have followed some of those practices and tendencies and unknowingly, like unknowingly, like obviously with never an intention to be an authority over over anyone else, like never to make anyone else feel more marginalized or oppressed or anything like that. So, um, and so did I, Summer. Absolutely. And yeah. That's what, because those are the marketing norms. This is our cultural norm. Like this is the air that we breathe. And when you're breathing that air, you can't smell it, right? Like this is the norm. But when we start seeing how that norm works, then we can start taking it apart and doing something different. Yes, exactly. And so I I would love to get a little more specific in terms of some examples of what this looks like to help people to be able to identify it within themselves, within the media and people that they're following, like what they're taking in. So maybe specifically talking about when you say authority over other women, can you give some examples of what that looks like? Sure. So usually, so I'll give you like the launch model. So there is an online marketer called Jeff Walker. He's kind of like the, the, the initiator of all this online marketing techniques. And all of the big female lifestyle empowerment brands, if you Google their name and then you Google Jeff Walker together, you will see the relationship. These people trained with Jeff Walker or partnered with Jeff Walker in like the foundational phases of their business and still to this day, like promote his stuff and do cross promotions with him. So I just want to sort of connect the dots that there's a connection here. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Walker invented this system of launching online courses and he was making heaps of money when other people were like just starting to get lists. Like he's like an old, old granddaddy of, of online launch marketing. And he call, he, he developed this system of like videos and emails and carts opening on a particular day. So he developed like the basic infrastructure that we all follow now when we're launching online courses. What distinguished him though, and what he says in his book is his magic hot sauce is social triggers. And he maps out nine social psychological triggers that you can trigger in the people who are reading your stuff. And what it does is it activates this unconscious process the the stuff that resides below our conscious thought, it activates these sequences that we as humans just automatically go into and behave in particular kinds of way. So one of them, for example, would be scarcity. When you, when people sense that a resource is scarce, so when there's only one book left in the bookstore or when an offer is going to expire or a price is going to go up or when there's like an impending drought and we're all going to starve. Like when we sense that there are a lack of resources, then we click into this unconscious process where we try to secure those resources no matter what. So he suggests that you activate this fear of scarcity in people so that they click into that unconscious behavior and grab the thing. 
So he's trying to increase sales by activating these unconscious human processes that are really about survival. So one of the things he says, the absolute best social trigger is authority. And he gives this example of he was in a car with his high school buddies and they were driving through a crowded parking lot after homecoming and it was just completely clotted up and no one could get through. So one of his friends jumped out because he had a flashlight and like a safety vest and he put the flashlight and safety vest and he started like directing traffic like he was a police officer and people started clearing the way so that their car could get through. So what he was saying is people respond to authority unquestioningly and obey and it takes very little to assume a posture of authority. And so then in launch marketing, he tells you all the different ways that you can position yourself as an authority so that people in your community will start obeying you unquestioningly and not on a conscious level. Like I don't read like some famous female lifestyle empowerment brand stuff and say, you know what? I choose to obey her unquestioningly. There's no deliberate decision there. But subconsciously, if she displays enough leadership and authority signals, I assume that she's a leader and I respond accordingly, which is I obey. And it's just, it's unconscious. It's below the level of conscious decision-making. Wow. So when he, he says that the way that you as a lifestyle marketer and me, I include me in this, the way we as lifestyle marketers create authority over the women in our community is we tell a rags to riches story in our about page. So we don't necessarily talk about our qualifications. We tell a rags to riches story. We say, you know, I was, you know what, back in the day I was fat and broke and miserable and blah, 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 blah. And now I'm rich and, you know, fabulous and thin and da, 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 da. Like all those sort of conventional stuff that, that I oppose. Oh, which I am so sick of too, by the way, (laughs) just on another note, (laughs) but yes. And and then they say, so they give you the rags to riches story and then they tell you they know this magic secret and you too can get this secret for like $2,000. And that creates authority and people subconsciously obey and it activates the scarcity that they don't have that thing and makes them buy without consciously deciding to buy. And where I think the big, the big problem is, is that a lot of us are service providers and coaches and we are trying to facilitate great decision-making and conscious, deliberate life choices. And to then be using unconscious psychological triggers in our marketing is fundamentally opposed to facilitating people making deliberate life choices. So I find the very notion of cultivating authority over other women and triggering them into subconscious obedience sequences, repellent and anti-feminist. And for people who are in the helping and service professions to trigger unconscious decision-making while at the same time saying that you show up for deliberate decision-making and deliberate life choices, it's, it just doesn't make sense. It can't be right. The two things cannot be reconciled. So that's why I like really reject that. And I'd like to really go out on a limb. I think that we as marketers have played a role in the rise of authoritarian leadership. And I'm specifically talking about like Trump. We have played a role because we have helped to condition people to obey the signals of lifestyle and the signals of like, you know, affinity and emotional and somatic, you know, affinity rather than consciously deliberately evaluate our choices. So I I feel like we take, we, we have to hold some, some responsibility there. It's not all Fox news's fault. Those of us who trigger authority in our buying sequences have to bear some responsibility for that too, because we've conditioned people to make significant life decisions based on likability 
and unconscious decision-making processes. And like the idea, like the kind of the archetype of a celebrity, like that being immediately an authority figure, you know, based on your popularity level. I've written about that. I I said that the last election in the United States was a triumph of lifestyle over leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's frightening. And, and yet so true because the, you know, we've witnessed that and we see people say, well, so-and-so should run for president. And it's always a celebrity. <laughs> it's like, I've, what credentials do they have? You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very scary. Well, and I think that's actually one of the things I want to note about some of the female lifestyle empowerment brands. Some of them are superb business tacticians, and we can give them all the credit in the world for being superb business tacticians, but they're not necessarily leaders. And we keep looking to them for leadership. And I think that's why my heart was so broken was because I believed the brand positioning around, you know, being rebels and change makers. And I believed it. But they actually a lot of them, in fact, are not leaders and are not willing to substantially stand up and provide that kind of leadership and analysis. Yeah. And so I want to ask you just about what what is the true meaning of empowerment? You know, if we're if we're seeing it being misused and leveraged in this way. What would you define empowerment as being or what is it? Right. I would look to the history of empowerment as coming out of radical social movements. And so women of color in I think it was like the 70s and 80s were using the word empowerment to talk about the collective social work they were doing in impoverished neighborhoods to build capacity. And part of that capacity building was supporting people in personal, developing personal success strategies. So it was both collective and personal. That was what empowerment was about. It was about collective social change and personal success strategies together. So that's what empowerment is supposed to mean. It's supposed to be both collective and social success strategies and personal success strategies. What we mean by it now, how it's commonly used now, is to mean like financial wealth or personal, like personal success. And the two things like financial wealth is not the same thing as collective empowerment. One person doing well does not mean the rest of women and the rest of marginalized people actually have the same capacities or abilities or lack of roadblocks to make that happen as well. So like one woman doing well is not women's empowerment. We have, it's both collective and personal, and we've got to work on both pieces in order to be able to like claim those words. So how do you suggest communicating a message like that while removing this idea that the onus is solely on the individual? I think it's when you connect the dots. What I like the advice I give out is if you're going to use political and feminist language and if you're going to use the language of empowerment, you actually have to connect the the socio-political dots. Mm -hmm. You actually have to talk about. So, you know, women are overwhelmed. A lot of like personal coaches and life coaches talk about women being overwhelmed and exhausted and burned out and then like teach them individual success strategies to fix that. Okay, cool. But that's still not empowerment. What empowerment be is if you're teaching them those success strategies and those self-care strategies and drawing attention to the fact that this is a collective condition. This is not like a result of a woman not being organized enough, not being savvy enough, not like having her shit together enough. This is actually the way our society is built to extract labor from women and keep them working all the time. And women have to work three shifts. You know, they have to go to work and be a successful career person. They have to come home and take care of their family and their mate. And they also have to put in a third shift of being like a sex object and like, you know, heterosexual and likable and all those things, like all the conventions. And if you deviate from any of those, you're 
going to be deprived of resources and affection and even respect. That is exhausting. Those demands, those unrelenting demands and all the roles that women have to perform is exhausting. So the reason women are exhausted is not because they can't get their shit together or aren't organized enough or haven't worked out the right systems. It's because this is the way patriarchy is set up. And if we want to change this system of overwhelm and exhaustion, we actually have to change the cultural situation. Everything else is just a coping strategy. I want a little more for us that, than coping strategies. Yeah, that's such a good way of thinking about it. So really speaking to it from that institutional level and as a leader, being active in those in those areas in order to facilitate change, like using your platform to do so as well. Right. And helping your clients connect those dots as well. Mm-hmm. So like what I realized last summer, well, two summers ago now when I had my last baby and he had colic and I was exhausted. And at the same time, I was trying to write a book and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get time to write a book. When I made the connection that time is a feminist issue and that there was a reason I couldn't get any time to work on my own work. And it was because my labor is being like socially constructed so that it belongs to everyone else first. And I have so many more expectations and roles and pressures placed on me than any man in my situation. That is why I couldn't get the time and the resources to do my own work. Like as soon as I realized that, as soon as I had that epiphany, then all the shame that I had about not being productive dissipated. And I realized how incredibly resourceful and capacious I actually was. I realized, wow, I am amazing. I'm doing incredible very few people in this circumstance could, could rock it the way I am. And all my shame disappeared. And I like ruthlessly committed to getting every single resource I needed to make my work happen. And so people like to say that, you know, when you pay attention to systemic cultural issues, and when you have a socio-political structural analysis, that you don't take responsibility for yourself, and you're not able to be successful, and you're just whining, and you're complaining, and you're not doing anything. That's exactly the opposite of what's true. When you see that your situation is being framed up for you, your counter will gets activated and you go, oh, hell no. And you go and get the resources and you decide to make it happen no matter what. So connecting the dots for people mm-hmm. actually does empower them. <laughs> Absolutely. It gives them that framework because it's a lot of times we just sit here thinking this is all my fault. Like I'm, I'm not getting this. And, right, and that is totally incapacitating. Right, right. Like that shame is incapacitating. And But when we realize that it's not that you're uniquely defective, but that the culture is defective, well, like, now you've got jet fuel in your tank. I hope at least. I'm not sure that works for everybody, but I hope it does. So, because, um, hey, let me elaborate on that. <laughs> I I feel like for some people, it's very hard to... like to feel that fire. I I feel like that doesn't, I feel like it works for me. I've always had a rebellious side to me. I think a lot of people do, but some people don't. And the idea of, of kind of seeing that system doesn't always facilitate change, at least in my experience. And so I don't know if that's just a, a me thing and I need to process that statement a little bit more, but that was just, that's what I've noticed a little bit in my own personal experience. So that's not my experience and it's not the experience of like many of the people I work with. Yeah, but for sure. I know I, I'm just anecdotally reporting, right? This is not, you know, I don't have a comprehensive survey to refer to. But, you know, I would question that a little bit and wonder if that's a little bit of like internalized oppression telling us that if we think collectively, we won't take personal action. Because I, I feel like that's a pretty conventional social notion that 
we can question. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I it might it might also be true. Like both things can be true at the same time. But what I do think is then if we return to what traditional, conventional, pure empowerment is, is collective action and personal success strategies. So if we paired the the connecting of the dots with the facilitating of personal skills, then the two things can like intersect and people can take action and can, you know, like transform their lives and the world around them. I agree. I agree. We marry them. Yeah. I mean, that's what's, that's what's, that's what's built a fire in me and, and many, many, many of the people I've worked with. I've just seen circumstances where there is resistance to it. And I'm not exactly sure the, you know, and like you said, it's probably internalized oppression. And I'm just kind of spewing my observations here with you. But yeah, it's something to explore on, at least within myself. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm never troubled by resistance because I always think resistance is temporary. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that I for for me at least as a coach, like I'm like this is, you know, it it fuels a fire in me to just be mm. that much louder with my perspective and what I want people to know because when when I don't see people buying into that. And I and I work specifically around body image, so fat acceptance mm-hmm. and fat phobia is really what comes to the table the most. Mm-hmm. And there's resistance to, towards like seeing I guess advocating for yourself from a rebellious perspective in order to try and change those ideologies in our society. And I and I yeah. you know, I th- I know that that's very hard for people in some in some cases. And so um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's my that's my perspective on it. That's the lens I'm coming at it through that I've seen. Oh, that totally makes sense to me somewhere like that is such an intimate embodied place. Mm-hmm. And we get so punished in that place, like yeah. so, so punished. And so like surrendering the fantasy of like the, you know, the thin woman who has all the things that you think you don't have access to or can't get when you're in a fat body like that. I feel that intimately I you know I've traveled that path so I I do totally hear what you're saying that Mm -hmm. is it's fraught and like the consequences of that are not imaginary like you can't kind of outthink that yes right like that that the consequences are not imaginary fat women make less money than thin women like that is for real fat women have a harder time like on dating sites and things like that like those things are real so like let's not pretend them away and so to use your life as like a fist in the air mm-hmm. comes with actual consequences in that particular space yes i think that's what i was trying to articulate yeah. that, that i've seen it be just be a challenge at such a uh, you know it's one of the more acceptable forms of of discrimination that it, that exists but i want to i want to come back to this idea of, you know, kind of self-care and like all of these different self-prefixed things like self-esteem, self-worth, self-compassion, and how really the importance of looking at it from a collective perspective versus through the vacuum of it being an individual's responsibility. How do those all relate together? So I am new to the self-care party. I was really skeptical of it until let's say a year ago. And now I'm really, really getting the importance of it, probably because I'm so pushed to the edges of my capacities these days. Mm -hmm. So now I really understand how critically important it is to nourish yourself and keep your cup full. It's really become abundantly clear. You know, that being said, there are two things I want to mark about self-care, that self-care in my understanding was invented or could arguably be accredited to Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks in the 80s. 
Mm-hmm. So two radical black feminist women invented this notion of self-care to help fortify black women and, and feminists and lesbians and people who were like socially marginalized to help them love themselves when the world was hating them, to help them keep going and survive even under enormous, you know, like punitive oppression and social rejection. So one of the things I want to note about that is that often gets lost When people are talking about self-care, I very rarely see self-care industrial practitioners referencing that history, like the contribution of black marginalized women to the very notion of self-care. And Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks both put out that self-care was like a radical political practice because it fortified the people most marginalized by the conventional culture. And now, you know, like the most privileged people are selling self-care as, you know, a service and never crediting the, the people who originated it. So I like I have a bee in my bonnet about that. And I want to acknowledge how very, very important self-care is. So I'm not rejecting self-care. I'm just kind of rejecting the, the lack of attribution and lack of credit and respect to the people who invented it. And I also think that our desperate need for self-care is a, res- a direct result of a lack of community care. I don't think we're supposed to have to do this stuff by ourselves. I think that we are supposed to be in community, in relationship and loved and nurtured and collectively cared for and caring for each other. But what happens is women are always the caregivers and the emotional laborers for other people. And we get emptied out and nobody is coming back at us with that same sort of care. We are so we are care resources, which is why we're under so much pressure to find ways to self-care because nobody's providing care for us. That's not how it ought to be. We ought to have a community of care where we're mutually nourishing and supporting each other. Yeah. And uh, I'm feeling like, okay, I need to change a lot of things I write, um, <laughs> moment, um, which is good, which is good. So I appreciate that. I'm coming to the table with full on humility here. And I, so I, on that note, I, I feel like what you're saying is that it's been appropriate like it's been self-care has been appropriated and coming back to and speaking to the roots of it and and really understanding that well and I think I'm not saying that no one should practice self-care except radical black feminist lesbians that's not what I'm saying right what I'm saying is let us give credit to the people who invented it and you know like let us let us like hold that tradition up and, and celebrate that And it is, they're right. It is radically self, it is radically important. This world does not, like this is a misogynist world. Women are not, women are considered a problem and we are, resources are appropriated from us and we actually are without care for the most part. So we do need to care for each other and we do need to care for ourselves. So I like, I really think it's important. All I want us to do is start as self-care practitioners, like talking about where it came from Mm -hmm. and giving credit. Like Bell Hooks is still alive. She needs to be celebrated for this and she needs to make some coin from this. Yeah. Okay. That's such a good point. And I want to, I want to tie this back to just the parallels between the female lifestyle empowerment brand and what Naomi Wolf talks about in the, the beauty myth. So, mm. you, you know, we, we, I've talked about the beauty myth on this, on this show before, you know, it's in a, it's, you know, one of the books that I recommend to individuals to read and how uh, standards of beauty are oppressive and the result of patriarchal capitalism. But you mentioned that the female lifestyle empowerment brand is a modern incarnation of what Wolf talks about. So I'd love you to elaborate on that. 
Right. So I, I feel like the female lifestyle empowerment brand, what is the modern incarnation of what Naomi Wolf calls the Iron Maiden when in the beauty myth? So like this archetype of what a woman ought to be, that's what the female lifestyle empowerment brand is. And that's what Naomi Wolf was talking about. Naomi Wolf's target in the 90s was mostly like women's media, like magazines. That was mostly the and, and since then, we've become very media literate about that. And for example, the, the feminist site Jezebel used to be called like something with something without airbrushing. And it was the whole point of it. They got started by showing like models who'd been airbrushed and, you know, like showing us the behind the scenes of like Vogue photo shoots and things like that. The point is I'm trying to make is that we've become very media literate because of Naomi Wolf and a whole lot of feminists who came after her showing us how the images we saw in magazines that made us feel so terrible that put us inside the Iron Maiden were fake. They were lighting, they were weaves, they were makeup, they were airbrushing, like they were not real. And like to hold anyone, even the women in the actual photos to that standard was unreasonable and impossible. So we have become very media literate. And I think when you pick up a magazine, most of us can now parse it with a certain amount of distance. But what happens with the female lifestyle empowerment brand is we haven't developed that same media literacy in our own social media feeds. So, so we see all these images of people whom we think we're in relationship with in, on our phones, on our tablets, on our computer all day, every day of all these idealized, beautiful lives and these beautiful images and these professional photo shoots, but we're parsing them intimately without that same skepticism that we parse Vogue with, without mm -hmm. looking at that and saying, oh, that's totally composed. You know, before she took that shot, there was a wet towel and a diaper on the desk, but she took it away. Yes. <laughs> so we're not, we're not parsing them with the same skepticism. So they are intimately having an impact on us and shaming us and making us feel like we're less than at the same time, holding out that image of if you are the ideal woman, you too can have this. So it internalizes a shame. It keeps us small and it keeps us like trying to comply with these unreasonable standards which again keeps us overwhelmed and exhausted and constantly laboring so i really do think like the female lifestyle empowerment brand is the modern version of the the beauty myth but it's even more intimate because it's like we don't we can we can decide not to pick up a magazine but very few of us are going to decide not to look at our phone and not to look at our instagram like that is so it's all day every day in a really intimate way from people with whom we feel like attached to, not from a magazine, but like someone that you feel affection for. Yeah. And I think it's, it's particularly hard with like, obviously people, you know, faith, there's advertisements too. So like, you know, Instagram ads and Facebook ads. So it's not even, it, it becomes almost impossible to filter it all out. Exactly. It's always there. And I, and I love how you say that, you know, you talk about women becoming brands and that, that they're consumable objects with that, in what ways would you like to see women representing themselves online? I would like us to pre like present more of a full spectrum of our lives. I actually think it's incredibly valuable for us to show each other our lives and to tell each other our stories. Like historically, those things have been invisible to us, deliberately so. So to, to let people into your life is actually, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I do think it's a feminist thing. The trouble comes is when we only show each other our highlight reels. Mm -hmm. So right before I got on this podcast with you, I posted a picture of my laundry on my bed in the room that I'm recording this podcast in and wrote about to jump on a podcast <laughs> because I wanted to make a point that like on your rise, laundry is going to be sitting on the bed. 
right? Like this is not like, I don't have a flawless curated life. Yes. I want to show you all the pieces, the light and the dark, the mess and the rise, you know, the glory and the fuck ups. I want to show it to you all. So that's kind of what I wish we would do is I wish we'd be a little more vulnerable with each other and show us show like the good and the bad so that we don't see these like highlight reels of other people's lives. Because those highlight reels, again, that's how you manufacture authority. It's not a feminist act to manufacture authority over other women. I think vulnerability becomes staged sometimes too, which I have a problem with. I do too. Yeah. So like the opposite, the the opposite of the female lifestyle empowerment brand is not all of us becoming hot messes, Mm -hmm. right? It's showing the whole spectrum of humanity and showing like, you're not always relentlessly positive and you're not always relentlessly pissed off. Like there's a whole spectrum of emotions and we are whole humans. So let's show each other all of it. I think that's so important. And, and just to be, be less filtered literally and (laughs) metaphorically, I think some of my favorite people are the ones that are blunt and honest and and show the their normal imperf- imperfect lives. Yeah. And I guess like the other thing is is for us to start being conscious of like what privileges we're displaying in our social media feeds because those privileges are again those authority signals that unconsciously trigger obedience. And you know like that's not we don't want to leverage those kind of social conditions. You don't want to leverage oppression to create personal profit. Like that's so like, I just want us to be conscious of it and start like picking, like looking in the mirror and like picking out the things that like, you know what, that can go. So what are some ways that consumers, like people listening can become more, more conscious? Like what, what are some signs that they can look out for or just feelings that they can. So like as a consumer, as a consumer, if you're feeling like a really strong affection for a, a person at the head of a brand and that, and you're kind of wanting to, to buy something because of that infection, I would slow down in that exact moment. Okay. Because like your like is probably being leveraged against you. So just slow down and kind of like step out of that and check in with other people who are not familiar with that person and sort of their cult of personality and, and get their check on it. So I'm not saying make your personal decisions by committee, but I'm just saying when you feel a real strong like coming on, slow down. And that like that that applies in dating relationships, that applies at a car dealership, that applies in an online course that you're considering. If you really strongly like someone, slow down. Mm-hmm. That would be one thing. And I guess then the other thing is take a look at the people you follow and look for the pattern. What is the pattern amongst them? What I noticed two years ago was all the people that I was following and looking to for leadership looked one way. And so I once wrote like, are all your gurus like white, thin and pretty? Why? So look for that in yourself. Such a good, yeah. And I think also just getting in touch with our emotions, you know, are you buying because someone has made you feel not good enough or like you don't know something that they know, you know, like there's, I think that that's, that's a real tactic too, that I, that that's played into my emotions before is just, there's something that, there's something that you don't know, like, and I know it and, but you gotta buy it, like come over here. Right. So that, yeah, that's the, that's the authority building tactic, right? Like I know some secret, you know, and, and you can pay to get it. That, Mm -hmm. that is an authority building tactic. That's the rags to riches story that like some secret was the the magic lever. There are very few secrets in this world that are magic levers. I can't think of anything that is a magic lever to like magically unlock everything you've ever wanted. Like that's what fairy godmothers do. That's not real. So I guess the other thing that I would watch for is if people whom you follow and look to for leadership are talking about empowerment, 
and especially women's empowerment, are they actually showing up for women on a collective? Are they talking about patriarchy? Are they talking about sexism? Are they talking about oppression? Like, are they actually showing up for those issues? Because if not, they're just using it as a brand position. And they're not necessarily going to be your personal advocate. They're going to be out for their own personal profit. That might not necessarily be true, but it's something, again, to slow down and really look for evidence that if they're using the word empowerment, that they are committed to collective empowerment. Those are really good points. And I think also just for other people who are coaches listening to take all of those things into consideration, certainly, you know, I'm I'm listening and paying attention and being a lot more mindful too. You've, you've taught me a lot in terms of just being better. <laughs> I have one more piece. Can I tell Can I tell you one more thing to watch for? Yeah, for sure. So one thing to watch for, a lot of these coaches have all been trained by like a handful of other coaches. So yes. a lot of the tactics are the same. So if you watch for certain tactics, you can start seeing them. Mm-hmm. So one of the tactics to watch for is payment plans. So let's say, let's say if you pay full price for a program, it's $5,000. But if you pay a payment plan, it uh, it's like X number of dollars a month and it adds up if you add it up to $7,500. Right. There are actually people who are charging 25, 39, and even 66% surcharge wow. for people who need to go on payment plans. So they're actually like leveraging someone's poverty in order to create more, not poverty, but like leveraging someone's financial gaps in order to create more profit for themselves. In that kind of situation, when you see someone profiteering off of you in order to to have access to a payment plan, you cannot trust that person. You just cannot. You know, like standard sort of credit card rates would be somewhere like between 8 and 12%. And most, like if you looked at like the, the risk that someone carries to take on a payment plan in terms of dropouts or defaults on payments is maybe like 10 to 12%. To charge then to then charge 25, 39 or 66 percent extra for a payment plan is nothing other than like being a profit shark and like eating up the people you say you care about. So watch for that. Like sincerely do the calculations when you're looking at your payment plan. And I would say if it's more than 15 percent surcharge for a payment plan, you really have to question whether you can trust that person. Yeah, that's 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 really shady. I can't believe it's that high of a percentage. I don't think I've ever, and probably just because I haven't looked at enough online programs to do that, do that math myself. But that's, that is, that just seems outrageous to me. Every time I get an offer, I calculate what the difference is, even if I'm not interested in the program. And if it's like, if it's higher than 12 or 15%, I put them on a list of like, never, ever buy from this person. Yeah. So that if when I do decide to buy, I check my list, like, nope, in his last program, he offered a 39% surcharge for payment plans, you know, and there's one, and there's one coach in particular who's really famous and trains hundreds of people a year. And she teaches people to charge 20 to 25% surcharge for payment plans. Uh And so then all of her followers then go on and do that. I, I think that's predatory. And I really, really question whether or not you can be in a coaching arrangement with someone who's preying on you. Yeah, I just think as a coach too, like we need to check in with our own guts. And just because an authority says to do something doesn't mean you need to do it. I think we can, it's so easy to get lost. And I can speak for myself here just in in thinking like, okay, this guru, I got to follow what they say, even if inside of me, it doesn't feel right. Like we have to, we have to follow our own gut and advocate for what we think is right. And I, I just, you know, it's something that I've 
had been able to be more loyal to and gotten more in touch with over the last couple of years. But prior to that, you know, when you're starting out and you're scrambling and you're like, what am I doing in this online space? You really do look to these people and you follow every single thing they say without even just checking in with your own morals and values and thinking, does this, does the, is this right? Do I, like, does this feel right for me? Summer, you've just brought us completely full circle because that's where we started this conversation. Mm -hmm. I said I used to be a feminist and a marketing consultant, but I'd have to put my feminist principles aside in order to execute the marketing techniques that I was learning from the people I was learning them from. Yeah. But now I'm a feminist marketing tech, uh, feminist marketing consultant, which means I don't put them aside. I actually start with my feminist principles and then market from there, build tactics that are consistent with what I'm committed to rather than having to put them aside and like kind of hold my nose and do something that I don't feel good about. So like what you just said is exactly like that was exactly the dilemma that pushed me out of online marketing. And that's where I am now coming back to let's actually start with our principles and market in alignment and in integrity with our feminist principles. Yeah, I have a lot of icky feelings and and just, you know, a lot of the fantasy stories about six. I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the things that that really irk me and make me feel super uncomfortable. But I know we're coming to a close here. So I want to say thank you so much. I really, really appreciate everything that you offer. And I'm and then, like I said, I've, I've learned so much. And I know I'm, I'm always trying to do better. So I appreciate everything that that you offer. And I really look forward to your book and, and your program and everything else. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Summer. I loved this conversation. And anytime you want to like pick up the rest of it where we left off, let's do that. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having it with me. We will definitely rock on. That episode was so good that I forgot to ask Kelly where we can find more of her. So I'm going to tell you where you can find more of her. She is at kellydeals.com and you can find that in the show notes at summerinandin.com forward slash 94. That's 94. She's also on social media, which you can find linked to in the show notes as well. And she has a really good Facebook group. If you are, if you are a coach and you're listening to this or you are a marketer or you have a business, that it's, it's a really Really great place to, to learn and just be with other people who are trying to do better. This was one of those episodes where I really had sweaty armpits because Kelly is so brilliant. And I was certainly on my toes just listening to everything that she was saying and thinking through as she's speaking the ways in which I can do better. And I come at this from the perspective of humility, having humility. So not feeling like, oh God, what's wrong with me? But hey, here's this really good information that I'm a lot more aware of now. And now what can I do to take this and do better with the way that I market my services and the copy on my website and whatnot. So I'm learning so much here. And I'm just so grateful that she took the time to come on the show and share that with with us. And I hope that you learned a lot too. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you being a listener of this show. I will see you next time. Rock on.